Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 184, for the 4th of February, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here again with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. We uh, we seem to have, I, I feel like this podcast uh, is a little bit of Groundhog Day, not simply because it was just Groundhog Day. <laughs> you mean because it's like a bus? You don't get one for ages, then three come at once, except for the you don't get one for ages bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm referring to the Flash Zero Day, which is the third one in about as many weeks, I think. And it's 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 a little concerning. Although I guess, you know, when we talked about this last week, we kind of both concluded that a lot of folks seem to be able to get by without Flash. And in fact, there was even a development in that since we last spoke a week ago. I found that Google has now defaulted YouTube to using HTML5 for video rendering uh, last week instead of uh, defaulting to, of course, preferring Flash Player and then falling back to HTML5 if your device didn't support Flash Player. So another forward movement for those of us trying to have a little less Flash in our lives. Eliminating Flash is seeming to be a better and better idea. I mean, there's nothing particular about this new zero day, is there, aside from the fact that, of course, it's unpatched. And that the only really safe thing to do is block Flash again, right? We haven't got exact details from Adobe yet about where it's been seen. Uh, from what I've heard, it seems to be associated with this Angler exploit kit again. And uh, so that means that the usual defenses that can protect you from an exploit kit can go a long way towards helping here. Uh, just to revisit that, with an exploit kit, normally what happens, you get taken to a Poison web page, there's some HTML, it loads some JavaScript, the JavaScript tries to suss out which exploit is going to work best in your environment, and then it fires in the hope that sooner or later the house of cards will collapse, and the best thing that can happen is nothing. The second best thing is your browser crashes without you getting pwned, and the worst thing is that one of the exploits works. So there are many different places in which you can intervene. Uh, and of course, as you say, in this case, if you don't have Flash installed at all, you have it turned off in your browser, that's one less thing to worry about. Of course, this Flash Zero Day, like the previous two, were being used against primarily Microsoft Windows systems. And that's not to say that the Mac and Linux versions of Flash weren't vulnerable, but they weren't necessarily being targeted by the crooks in this case. Now, there's another vulnerability out there this time that's very specifically affects Linux systems. Uh, this particular one's in the GNU libc library, which is kind of at the core of nearly every Linux distribution out there. Unlike the Flash one, it's not exactly a zero day. I mean, this flaw was fixed back in May of 2013, so coming up on two years in a couple months. But there is kind of a bad habit in the Linux world, which is this concept of a long-term service release. And Think of it as the Windows XP of the Linux world, right? You, you get something you like and you've got it tuned and very stable and you don't want any, uh, you don't want the foundation shifting underneath you. So you kind of freeze yourself in the past. And then vendors like Red Hat and Debian and others uh, do what's called backporting. Anything critical from a security perspective that's discovered after that snapshot has been taken, they go and figure out a way to code a fix for that specific security bug and backport it to this old version of all the stuff that you're running so that you can stay secure but but not really have any uh, API changes and that kind of stuff in a Linux system. And unfortunately, even though this was fixed back in 2013, it wasn't flagged as a security risk because whoever fixed it just decided it was a good old-fashioned bug and it, and it 
didn't have any security implications or it was not exploitable or something. Well, Chester, the bug that was fixed was a buffer overflow. And so really that should raise red flags to say this may not be exploitable, but it can't possibly be right. Uh, it's likely to lead to a crash. So at the very minimum could be a denial of service. The problem with glibc is that, as you say, someone found this and uh, gave it a cool name, ghost, because it affects the get host by name function. And uh, so that created a bit of a stir. Fortunately, most distros very quickly were able to go and backport the fix. And that meant that it was all ironed out before any harm was done. Good on them. They, they did all they could do, which is get the fix out very quickly and efficiently. But if people don't consume the fixes, then it's no better than not being fixed. And, and I think this is even more of a problem in the Unix and Linux world than it is in the Windows world of not consuming patches when they're available, if ever. Because, you know, they're immune. They're, they, they can't be infected, right? What's the harm? Particularly when there are lots of devices that consumers own that are probably running Linux and they don't even realize it. The silver lining here is that a lot of home routers may not be using glibc because it's absolutely giant. So a lot of the smaller distros use more compact alternatives like microlibc. Uh, Android is based on Linux but uses Google's own libc called Bionic. OS X being BSD-based doesn't have glibc, at least by default. So the majority of computers, fortunately, in the world aren't actually affected by Ghost, but a very significant minority are. And as you said, a significant minority of the significant minority are just quietly going to be sitting with this vulnerability, possibly for years. I, I think forever is the word you were looking for. Yeah, home alarms, garage door openers, NAS devices, firewalls, routers, audio recorders, all sorts of things that kind of seem harmless until you say, hey, there's a socket on this that lets me connect it to the Internet of Things. Uh, and uh, then you kind of wish you hadn't. <laughs> My fear of how it might play out is somebody out there realizing that there's uh, an opportunity to infect millions of people's washing machines with something to do a DDoS attack against someone they don't like. And that's that's the scary part of the unintended consequences. The idea of a buffer overflow in a washing machine makes me think of a shed full of suds, <laughs> <laughs> which would not be funny at all. So another story we've talked about on the chat chat before is the battle between the US FCC, the Federal Communications Commission and Marriott International, which uh, one of their brands, known as the Gaylord Hotel Group, was caught uh, trying to knock people off of using their own MiFi devices or personal uh, wireless, uh, you know, internet connections in conference areas of some of their hotels, and even at one point was being discussed for you know using it in the 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 actual rooms. And and the idea being that Marriott was suggesting it was a security risk to their patrons uh, that could be tricked by a man-in-the-middle attack against their networks, and they were just defending the network. They paid a rather large fine, but as a further development to that story, the FCC made it very clear this week that no one under any circumstances should be attempting this kind of thing. And not only is Marriott prohibited from doing it, but uh, other hotel chains are, for that matter, probably any sort of commercial institution that uh, whether they have an interest in their own Wi-Fi being accessible to customers or not should not be interfering with people's personal communication devices. I thought that was a really good thing to, you know, kind of clarify some of these rules and, and, and look out for 
legally purchased radio frequency compliant devices to not be interfered with by anyone, regardless of what your intentions are. It's important to remember that what Marriott was doing was not any kind of signal jamming. You could set up your access point. You could even connect to it. It's just that they'd connect to it as well and say, oh, no, no, we want to de-authenticate you. So as a commenter on Naked Security said, hey, that sounds just like a denial of service. And uh, my response to that is, you can make that statement, but leave out the word sounds like it's exactly a denial of service. If there was even the slightest benefit to security in doing so, Marriott might have had a case. But I think the FCC has got this absolutely right. Sort of saying we don't buy this security argument that by forcing somebody to use a paid for unencrypted open Wi-Fi access point, the idea that that might be more secure than an access point that somebody has taken the trouble to set up themselves, it does beg a belief, doesn't it? Yeah, there, there's one more piece of this that's still not resolved, which is the legality of deauthorizing people that may be mimicking your network. So gear from companies like Aruba and Cisco Aeronet have a, a network defense capability built in where they say, okay, I'm broadcasting to the world the Sophos SSID inside of the Sophos owned property here in Vancouver. And if I see any access points that are not part of the managed Sophos network saying that they are also Sophos, I'm going to deauth clients from those access points to prevent people from being man in the middle. And that decision has not been made clear yet by the FCC as to whether that behavior is allowed. You would think that particular behavior would be allowed. You shouldn't, uh, you should have the right to defend your private network against someone impersonating it within your physical premises. Um, but of course, as we know with Wi-Fi, you're also controlling things that are outside of your physical premises in many cases, and it's not so cut and dry. Yeah, I, I do agree. There, there is a good, what I believe would be called a use case for forcibly de-authenticating people, as you say, if there's a clear and present danger that somebody set up a hotspot that really doesn't belong and their goal is to trick you. I guess the deal in a hotel is if I'm setting up my personal hotspot and it's actually my iPhone and it's in my hand and someone's de-authenticating me from my own personal hotspot, the one I own and operate, that's clearly dodgy. I mean, it can't possibly be right, can it? No, no, that that's the, and that's what the FCC ruled on. So I think we I think we pretty much agree with the the FCC decision. It would be nice to see the last remaining little bits here clarified because that was sort of part of the argument Marriott made initially was that um hey, they should be able to defend their network and their definition of defense just happened to be overly broad. Now, last but not least, um we published a new paper out of Sophos Labs this week, uh, known as uh, Exploit This uh, by our colleague Zappi. And uh, maybe you can give us a, a quick rundown on the findings of this research. Uh, as Zappi himself says in the paper, people are quite used to reading comparative reviews, say, of antivirus software, but no one's ever compared virus authors before. So he thought he'd have a try. That's the sort of fun side of it. The serious side is he's actually looked at how various malware writing groups have used a particular uh, exploit, obviously not a zero day anymore. It's an RTF exploit. The interesting side of what came out of it is he found that the guys who are doing so-called APTs, Advanced Persistent Threats, 
in many ways are not as advanced as what some people still call the common or garden cyber crooks. The crooks who make their money out of infecting as many people as possible are actually more switched on when it comes to adapting and evolving existing attacks uh, to give them a longer life. Having said that, if you've patched against this particular exploit, which is CV 2014-1761, all of these attacks should be moot. So the paper also reminds you of the importance not only of patching, but of going back and reviewing your patches to make sure you haven't missed a few computers because one rotten apple spoils the barrel. My takeaway from this was sort of this normally defeatist attitude we have against these uh, advanced attacks. Like, you know, you go to conferences and talk to people and everybody's like, well, there's no hope in stopping these guys. They're so advanced and so sophisticated and they've got zero days just popping out of their duffel bag. They've got so many with them that how could I defend my network against this? But by no means should we just roll over and go, there's no defending ourselves because these guys are too smart. Absolutely. And I'll leave you again with Zappi's words, his conclusion in the paper. If security researchers and sysadmins follow and act upon vulnerability announcements, they are likely to be prepared for these groups. That's both the APT guys and uh, regular cyber crooks. But then he does warn us, despite all this, one should never underestimate the malware authors mentioned in the report. Yeah, complacency is always the enemy. And as you eloquently pointed out, although I'm not sure that hacksaws really use duffel bags anymore, Chester, they're not somehow smarter than all of us, guaranteed, and we've lost. That defeatist attitude has no place. Well, I encourage everyone to go over to Naked Security and uh, do a quick search on Exploit This if it's still not on the front page when you visit to grab a copy of the paper and take a look at the details and the facts for yourself uh, from Zappi's research. And on that note, I will conclude Sophos Security Chat Chat 184. As always, the latest security news in addition to Exploit This is available over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available via RSS, on iTunes, on the TuneIn app, and at soundcloud.com slash Safa Security. Until next time, stay secure.